I think like startups can leverage AI to get to market faster, but they still need that innovative product or problem that they solve better than anyone else to thrive. And AI, I think, just accelerates the potential speed to market or speed to scale in certain situations. I don't think that, personally, I don't think that a startup who's created, like you've seen a ChatGPT plugin or mm. this, that, or the other, like, I don't know that that's a, like a lasting business model, in my opinion. Yeah, I just think it's, it's just more powerful when a big company leverages the same functionality because of the, the data set. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Nodeflare is a trusted recruiting partner for startups looking to scale their technology teams. They have a curated pipeline of talent from data scientists to full-stack engineers. Learn about the latest salary trends and benchmark compensation across the region. Nodeflare offers more than 10,000 verified salary data points completely free to employers. Check out www.nodeflare.com today. Hey, Bavik. Really excited to have you on the show. Good to see another C. Berkeley alumnus here on the show. And also, this is our fourth time trying to record this. So a lot of blood, sweat, and technical troubleshooting has happened to get to this one. Yeah, yeah. Super excited to be here. Go Bears. And here's to hoping this one is the charm. Yeah, this is the charm, yeah. Yeah. So Bavik, could you introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. My name is Bavik Bashi, currently serving the Managing Director Asia Pacific at Carta. Prior to this, spent almost a decade at a company called Adamplan and have spent most of my career in B2B SaaS. So how did you get into B2B SaaS, right? Because it's a very, it's a subset, yeah. specialized. Obviously, everyone thinks it's popular today, but how did you personally get into it? Complete luck, if I'm being completely honest with you. I started my career at Big Four. So I was at KPMG and I didn't like it very much. And I had busy season coming up around the corner and I made a goal for myself. I think it was Thanksgiving break that I was going to get out before busy season. That was my objective. And so I just started asking around and trying to, you know, opportunities and actually somebody that I, I knew at Deloitte Consulting, and I was actually asking for a referral at Deloitte Consulting, but she told me that if you're going to join Deloitte and if you're going to join my team, you're going to end up working exclusively on projects related to a technology called Anaplan. And so rather than come join me and do all of these Anaplan projects, you might want to check out this company called Anaplan. So Anaplan was the only B2B SaaS company I spoke to, and it was the one I ended up joining. And then I found myself in the industry. Yeah. So when you joined B2B SaaS, obviously, you know, you didn't have much, but what were some unexpected or surprising learnings that you learned in building this? Because I think back then, it was very new, right? Today, everybody's like, God, oh, there's a playbook, there's a SaaS conference, Sester conference. But what were some surprising personal learnings that you took away since you got into it the first time? 
Yeah, it was it was super new. I think Salesforce, right, was pioneering to some degree the category. And so that we always used to talk about Salesforce internally as well. Mm-hmm. I think they were like the benchmark. Right. And then Workday was just coming up at the really early stages of Workday. My early learnings about SaaS, I think one was just the incredible simplicity of the business model, almost to a point where I was like, is it is it really too good to be true, right? Because you have this product, you invest in building it more or less once. I mean, obviously there's ongoing investment, but like you get a substantial portion of the value created up front. And then you're just able to to sell it and scale a business around it at a gross margin profile anywhere between 85 and 92%, which is incredible. Like if you think about any other product, right? And then the bottom line is very controllable. I think that was probably one of my first key learnings about how much power we had in terms of determining our own outcomes based on our decisions, whether to spend more or spend less. And I think because of the nature of the product I joined, Anaplan, which effectively helps companies forecast a PL, I became intimately well-versed with kind of the the variables behind a PL. So I couldn't help but think about our own as I was implementing PL forecasting for a company like Workday, which has a very similar business model. Right. So I think that was one of the key learnings. And then Probably right after that was, again, just deep diving on each variable and understanding why it was so hard uh, to move those in a specific direction. Mm -hmm. Like in math, it's very easy to say, okay, we're going to drive down implementation support costs by 5%. But why is that so difficult for an Anaplan versus a a Slack, for example? And just kind of understanding the nuance of it. Those Those were kind of the two first things I fixated on. And from that experience, what were some myths or misconceptions that you think people have about B2B SaaS as a result of your learning? I think I think one of the so as easy as it is to execute, I would say, a B2B SaaS business model, I think it's equally challenging to find a genuine problem that you're solving. I think I was very fortunate to have joined a company that had a lot of success because we solved a genuine problem so much so that we were able to fundraise an IPO and then sell the company again. Like that only happens if we have really tapped into a significant pain point, right? But for every Anaplan, there were, you know, tens, if not hundreds of companies that just didn't make it that far. And that's because, because it's so easy, I'd say the barrier to entry is pretty low for SaaS, relatively speaking, right? Versus like an asset intensive industry or something like that. It's also attractive to just try to get something going, but you realize the problem you're solving either A, isn't a problem, B, isn't that big of a problem, or not that many people have the problem. Like it's very easy to start and fail in SaaS, I think more so than anything else, because it requires a little bit less bravery to get in. And then equally, you can fail pretty quickly as well. Right. I think that's a very common problem, which is like, I think people are like, oh, this is a business problem. And then I'm like, well, is it a business problem? Like, you know, I met them, you know, and I always joke like HR officers are all the same, right? Like you go to every company, the HR leader of that equivalent role, like, because, you know, the incentives of the role are so similar. So, you know, obviously everybody has an individual personality and everybody's wonderful, but from a purchasing decision, they tend to be very like clustered, right? Very similar-ish. But then I always get to it as like, I think a classic example, people are like, okay, we think that HR would like to buy this. And I'm like, is that number one problem, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six, number seven, right? So I think it just feels like a lot of folks, like you said, kind of like the identification of that business need is so, I don't know what's the word, fuzzy 
mm-hmm. I'm sure you met a lot of folks who kind of like had that very fuzzy sense of the role, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's also such a, there's such a speed element to it as well. Right. Like equally on the other side, you'll see companies that are insanely successful that solve right. seemingly a very simple problem. I could argue Carta is one of those, right? right? Where it's like a relatively straightforward, simple problem. Like you're right. issuing equity to employees, you're managing a cap table, kind of looks the same for most right. companies, industry agnostic, so on and so forth. But I think the speed with which you solve the problem, obviously if you're a first mover, you have a little bit right. more of a runway before anyone else tries to catch up or copies you, which is probably our advantage. But if, you've, if you're able to capture that really quickly, even if your total addressable market isn't that big, but you solve it all, by then you're now an incumbent in so many different accounts where you can expand your footprint in a different way, or you could potentially introduce a product or service offering either adjacent or not to that same customer. And that then, then you become kind of a multi-product company, right? Very quickly. And maybe they're all SaaS products. And then at some point, if that works out, you can kind of evolve into hopefully being like a platform company. And that definitely requires some re-architecture and rethinking of the business model. But I guess that's the flip side of it. And that's probably what every founder is hoping for to some degree. Mm. Like they yeah. know that making a, a better calendar app is not the end all be all of their business, but right. maybe that's the entry point as a, as a simple example. So then obviously you go back to like founding teams and just execution and speed and, and some of those basics that VCs are thinking about every day. So, yeah, I think that's the tricky part, right? It's like either you're like the best version, like Cadently is a good example, right? It's like a, it's like one of those simple ones, which is like, let's, avoid passing the ball, ping pong, the meeting time and location schedule, which is a giant pain in the rear, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, they did a good job in a product-led approach, right? And then you have other companies that are much more enterprise-sized that are trying to, like, I met an AI company and they're like, okay, in order for us to work, we need access to all your company data and we're trying to do this using product-led growth. And I'm like, yeah. oh, hold on a moment. <laughs> like, I don't think I want my junior person to pay using his personal credit card and then yeah. upload my company server to yeah. your AI machine. Because you know, like, <laughs> I, don't yeah. think that, I don't think it's easy for you to cross-sell back to your chief information officer and be like, hey, yo. I really want to upsell this product now because yeah, it the, works. Use, yeah, the <laughs> use case that three people were doing is now going to be top five spend for the CIO. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. So I think this. I think I think is that the link between I think like what the product was to sell versus what the sales motion is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in our era, that, I think that's why there were so many disruptive companies. I could argue Anaplan was a disruptive company, yeah. but we took a very traditional sales motion with a right. disruptive technology. So we, right. we, we, our sales motion, frankly, didn't look significantly different than SAP Oracle IBM. It was the right. product was disruptively different. Now we're in like a third generation in that particular category where you're seeing the disruptive product, like an, like an Anaplant, cross-functional planning, anybody can use it, very, very cool, and a different sales motion, which could be more product-led or really user-driven rather than buyer-driven, which I think is a big difference in, in product development roadmaps and positioning and everything else. Yeah. I think people tend to get this wrong. I mean, I've met so many founders. Okay. Like, yeah, they're like, okay, we're going to do enterprise-led sales. And then this is not great at enterprise sales. I'm sure you've coached a lot of founders and teams through this process, including your own, right? So yeah. what do you think are the common, I think, failure points you think that prevent a team from learning and eventually being able to deliver great enterprise sales 
motion? Yeah, I think, I mean, you, I think this is just realizing that enterprise sales, you really have to, um, again, just use the same firm, you, like, you really have to solve a problem. Like you have to really have a strong value proposition. And frankly, you probably should have a higher ASP or average sales price associated with your product. Like I always worry about a company that's running a kind of a sales-driven motion with a very low ASP. Like right. to me, there's just something missing there because if the problem you're solving is super complex and super meaningful and super impactful, then chances are that's going to require a human-to-human interaction at some point to really map out a specific context of a specific customer, their problems, and kind of how you as a product and maybe a product and service are going to hey, help them address that. And if you can solve, you know, if you can orient the whole conversation around problem solving, it's much easier to deduce a good commercial construct, right? Because it's just the problem you're solving. If you're optimizing inventory holdings by 2%, you can do some math and figure out what the software could be worth as like a percentage of ROI, right? For example. And so that's where enter- I think enterprise or sales kind of led growth makes sense yeah. because you have salespeople who are really, really good at that. And, and there's a much more kind of, there's a much heavier relationship building aspect to that sales process because at the end of the day, it's trust. Like, do you trust the words that are coming out of the salesperson's mouth to help you actually solve the problem? Because you know it's not the salesperson who solves the problem. There's usually an implementation team or a service partner or somebody else who's going to get involved and do like the dirty work to some degree. And so there's a lot of like trust needed to make a big commitment. And so I just think this, like, Everything is elevated in that scenario. And so my big learning has just like to be honest with yourself as a, as a founder or us as a company of like, which bucket are we in? If it's a simple product solving a relatively straightforward product problem, then like, let's look at probably product led and see if, you know, the thesis is true, right? And we can just solve that problem quickly, like execution speed quickly, bunch of people download it, bunch of people start paying for it eventually. Great. Fantastic. And then figure out where we go from there versus the, the sales-led one, I think you need to be super strategic in terms of the problem you're solving. It sounds straightforward the way you say it, but it just gets so hard in execution, right? So I think you've coached quite a few like B2B SaaS founders uh, yeah. as well in your role, right? As a side, as an advisor, as a consultant, as a friend. So how do you go about helping them upgrade that way? Is it like just like, I don't know, Send him a book. Do you send him a podcast? I don't know. What do you do? How, how do you go about this podcast? I'll send him this podcast. <laughs> no, I, I, it's very bespoke. I mean, yeah. that's that's part of the yeah. like exactly what we said. Like, I would take the same sales approach that they would want to take with their customer, and I would take with them to understand. Kind of, usually, I look at the origin story about like why did you why did you think that this was a problem worth solving, right? Like, what 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 was the genesis of it? So let's go back to that, and then obviously, a lot of times the thesis has evolved from then. Like once they get into building it, testing it with customers and getting feedback and all of that. So I try to really understand what they're doing so that I can give them a more kind of specific strategy. So for example, some SaaS businesses are tailor-made for partnerships and channel distribution, Mm. right? And it's this amazing, everyone loves to talk about it. It's like, amazing, partnerships, channel, leverage, scale, buzzword, 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 right? Like, and it's like other people will be selling for you. Other people will implement it for you. You just sit there like a factory and churn out product. Amazing, right? And it can be depending on the product, the buyer, the markets, the 
ease of with which a channel partner could buy or sell, implement your technology. But it's not for everyone. Again, Anaplan being a great example, like we were not ready for channels and partners, although we wish we were, because there was just, again, too complex, too nuanced, and frankly, distracting as well. Like when you have a product that can do a million different things from a million different people, and then you let the channels decide how the product is going to get distributed, sold, positioned, implemented, it, it actually can create like an unexpected support burden on you as a company and as a founder, because now the thing you built for financial planning is being used for some really bespoke HR or supply chain thing that you didn't expect. Um, good problem to have, you would argue, but still it can quickly snowball out of control. And then mm. if you have a couple bad customer mm. implementations, a couple bruises, a couple bad CSATs, that can ruin the business as well really quickly because you're disruptive. And so it's like, oh yeah, the Anaplan thing, they talk a good game, but they don't deliver. And then you're done. You're kind of dead right. in the water. So yeah, it's a very bespoke approach that I try to take with every founder. Channels is just one example. You could say the same for like how you structure marketing, very different ways to do that. Obviously the, the sales versus product led like sales motion that you talk about, even like subtle things like do you have SDRs, BDRs, both, one, why, cost, as well relate, related to like the gross margin profile and the average sales price. Like what are the cost basis, which then influence the talents that you have? Like, are you hiring freshers and teaching mm. them how to hit the emails and phones? Or mm. do you have salespeople that are in their forties and fifties sometimes right. because they're selling to global 2000 CXOs? There's so many, that's what I love about SaaS really. It's like, it's so simple. I think like when you zoom out, but the more you zoom in, all the complexity starts to reveal itself. At least what separates the winners from maybe the more average kind of companies. Yeah. And as you think about these average versus stronger companies, what have you seen any innovation or changes or like, I was going to say revolutions, but maybe evolutions uh, yeah. maybe over the past five years that you think have impacted the way SaaS is produced or sold or distributed? Yeah, I think probably the biggest evolution of SaaS is just, I would say, kind of decoupling a lot of the layers of the actual technology stack that's used to deliver the mm. application to the customer or the mm. user, right? Like we, there was previously, it was like, okay, you have your own data centers and then you kind of, you, you write your own code and you build your own application. And then you may, within the application, you have different components, right? You have security and authentication, you have calculation engine, potentially you have user interface. These are all their decision choices of whether these are, are kind of separate or they're modular, right? And previously, you always had to deal with the trade-off. Like if you make them modular, yes, much more flexible in terms of development and innovation, but slower generally because like data, you're, the more times you're moving data back and forth between different things, the, the slower the end user and, and ultimately the end user having punching in a number and getting a sub-second response versus like a one-second response makes a huge difference in how you perceive your experience and so on and so forth, even down to the product adoption and, and ultimate like end users logging in and using it. And all of those things pretty much have been disrupted in their own right, right? Like you've had cloud computing, everyone knows, come in, take off that whole data center thing, right? Okay, so it may, usually makes sense to do it with them until a certain point when it does it. And then you have to either renegotiate or, or decide what to do. Then you have microservices, like from an API perspective, which has completely changed product development, you could argue. But you could really have everything be super modular and talk to different components and change those linkages pretty, pretty easily. 
which again then gives you a lot more possibilities in terms of having like your interface layer have nothing to do with your calculation engine. And then you can start reusing components. So I think the whole like, it's really more technical, I feel the revolution right. more than anything that has changed the way you think about developing SaaS. And obviously that has an impact on how you go to market with the product as well. But I, I, I believe the revolution has been mostly on the technical side over the last five years, at least. Yeah. Right. And I think there's a lot of buzz around AI, right? Uh, yeah. So I'm sure you must be thinking about it all the time, right? In terms of like, it obviously changes how technical code is written. It changes how yeah. sales, chat, customer service, sales yeah. could potentially be done. Then yeah. obviously people are talking about, oh, maybe we have micro SaaS businesses that could be done by one person. Other people yeah. are saying that AI is going to benefit the large companies that have the data instead. So, yeah. I mean, let's just start and take a step back and just say like, how do you think it impacts to be SaaS from your perspective. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's a that's a big question. It is, yeah, it's got a lot of buzz. Gratefully so, I would say. I was a little bit slightly more bearish on the Web3 buzz. I may be wrong for that, but just as personal, right? And and a little bit more bullish on the AI buzz. Maybe it's just because I can more quickly understand its applications and use cases. Like, and I think we're seeing that, right? Like it's get, like AI is getting integrated into every product and service we know quicker than Web3 ever did. Right. And I think for me, I break it into a couple like broad areas, right? One is commoditized AI, right? Which is stuff that everybody can use to enhance their offering, right? So like, I think a good example is probably like the chatbot, right? Like simple. That's how she already been there, like to some degree, right? Before this whole like revolution happened, like people were using like bots and stuff and the like productivity AI, like, okay, guessing what you're about to type or guessing how to finish the formula you're writing, things like that. I think that's much more commoditized. So I think every product and service we interact with will have to integrate that in. And if it doesn't, we won't use it anymore. It's pretty simple. It's not a differentiator, in my opinion. Like, yeah, being quicker to adopt it, you may get user migration that then stays with you and doesn't re-migrate when like, the competitive product does the same thing. So there's a little bit of an opportunity, but like short-term. I think the long-term opportunity with AI is really AI. There are two components at a very high level, in my understanding, of it. It's like the data set against which your AI learns, right? That's like one big variable in the equation. And then it's like kind of the, the intelligence, like the learning model that you are able to build that can take any data set. So those are the two things, right? ChatGPT is right now like the learning model that everyone is like leveraging, right? Because it seems to be the best we've seen. And the data set they've given it is kind of like the internet, right? <laughs> and, uh, up until a certain point. So I think in AI, two companies, there are going to be companies that work on the learning models. I think those are few, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's a, that's a big barrier to entry. Like you have right. to have been working on this for a long time. Like you're not just going to catch up overnight on the learning model itself. Everyone we see right now is like leveraging that learning model to apply it as a productivity hack. The second, which I think is quicker for non-AI companies to potentially figure out and leverage as a wedge, Carta included, is data set. So I think if you have a proprietary data set today, and meaning it's a data set no one else has, only you have it, that is a wedge because only you can then apply AI to that and make sense of it and make it available in whatever way you choose to, to a user base. And you will continue to have that wedge because you own that data. 
I think that's a big one. And so I think, like I said, Carta, I think has a really unique opportunity there. 35,000 plus private companies using us for cap table, 5,000 plus funds using us for fund administration, so on and so forth. That gives us a lot to work with. There are other, you know, a lot of other companies. I think I've seen some companies doing that with their own data sets. I think that is the kind of the medium term opportunity, like short term productivity hacks, media term, use proprietary data sets, come up with interesting value out of that. And then long term will be obviously evolution of the learning models themselves. So that's kind of like how I think about AI right now. So what's interesting is that there's also a debate whether you think it's startups or large companies uh, that will benefit from this, right? And I think on one school of thought, like you kind of mentioned, is like the advantage goes to people who have proprietary data, right? And so that to me implies maybe companies with historical data, which implies larger companies, right? Mm -hmm. And I think other people made a claim that it's really about innovating and using the capability as a business model, right? And so that advantages smaller companies. So how do you think that shakes out or how do you think that plays out over the medium to long term? It's a good question. I don't know. I mean, really, right? It's a speculative. Um, I, I, yeah, I have a strong feeling that it's going to be large companies because, as I said, the proprietary data sets, I think, just gives them an opportunity to leverage the existing innovation in a unique way, right? So I do think in the medium term, it's, it's large companies who, who adapt and, and decide to, to leverage that. And a lot of large companies have to kind of go digging through their own like legal frameworks to understand whether they got the permission to use that data because there was really there was a divergence in the 2010 to 2020 era of companies whose MSAs kind of master subscription agreements said that they would use your data or they wouldn't right like and I think that that's going to end up being a bigger decision than people realized I think the startups being able to be like AI native right like we talk about digital native like it could be AI native I think Certainly there's an opportunity there because we all know how hard it is for large organizations to move. And like, no matter how hard they try, they will not leverage AI to the fullest. That's just a matter of fact. And so there's certainly opportunity, but I, I don't think it's the business itself. Let me put it that way. I think like startups can leverage AI to get to market faster, but they still need that innovative product or problem that they solve better than anyone else. To thrive and AI, I think just accelerates the potential speed to market or speed to scale in certain situations. I don't think that personally, I don't think that a startup who's created like you've seen them, ChatGPT plugin or mm. this, that, or the other. Like, I think I don't know that that's a, like a lasting business model, in my opinion. Yeah, I just think it's it's just more powerful when a big company leverages the same functionality because of the the data set. Yeah. So I guess maybe another way of saying it is the advantages accrues to those who have a proprietary large data set. And the question yeah. is, it's more likely a large company can figure it out rather than a small company to have early yeah. access to that. But doesn't mean a small company can't figure out how to build it themselves, right? The no, I think a lot of the companies that have huge opportunities are like data companies. They are like Zoom Info is, is a one that's known pretty well. I think data companies have a unique opportunity right now to just introduce new products to market, right? And new services to market. So that, that'll be like a very specific, interesting space that almost every B2B company consumes from, right? Like most B2B companies will be subscribing to data sets because you're looking for accounts and contacts and everything to drive your sales-led motion. So I think that's like very immediate. I've been waiting as a, as a, as a potential buyer, I've been waiting to see 
something cool there. Yeah. And I think that makes an interesting case, right? Because then, I don't know, a lot of technology feels like it generates new companies, right? New startups and everything. And then, I don't know, in my head, it just implies into my head that this wave of AI startups are not really going to be startups. It's going to be a, a technology that really gets distributed across the existing incumbents in that sense, rather than a new wave of companies. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know. Could be a lot of M&A though, right? Like, yeah. I, like I said, large companies are slow to move. If a startup gets going with something that makes a lot of sense and they show some early traction, that could be just the easier path for a big player to say, okay, you know, right, we'll just go ahead and pick that one up and integrate it into this product or the whole company or whatnot. And that's not a bad outcome for the startup yeah. or the investors, right? So like, I, I, I do think it's a, it's a, it's a tailwind. Right? right for for startups, um, right. it just may not be like iconic standalone IPO and beyond brands that sustain forever. Which, right. which, yeah, that's a that's an interesting one. Where it feels like we're going through like a a re I don't know, this is not a word, but like a re conglomerization of yeah. industry. Like right. this happened way back in the day, and you see it in certain ASEAN markets. The Philippines right. is a great example where it's like right. run by ten families with these huge conglomerates. India being another one. You've yeah. seen that on like a global scale almost now with some of our big tech players. Yeah. No, I think it's really interesting when you put it that way as well. And on that note, obviously, we see Southeast Asia, right? There's obviously B2B SaaS. And obviously, everybody knows it's been a challenge, right? In terms of it, I think Peng Ong at Monk's Hill calls it like the GDP per capita, right? That's inflection point, right? It says that below a certain inflection point, labor-wise, it just makes more sense to use humans. And once <laughs> your cost of labor goes beyond a certain point, then you start saying like SaaS makes more sense. Obviously, you can slice and dice, right? You can be like, okay, some metropolitan areas have higher salaries and some professions within those areas will have higher salaries as well. So, you know, that automation drive can kick in for different stages at different mm-hmm. professions. But still, I think there's an overall sense that I think a lot of the, the companies and startups being funded in Southeast Asia are really these like high volume, low margin complicated business models, right? Versus like you said, B2B SaaS is so beautiful, so simple, and it's, it's hard to see in Southeast Asia, right? So yeah. I mean, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts about that. How do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope I'm quoting it correctly. I think it was Jan Capital, the, their report, right? It would show the, the emergence, albeit somewhat slow, but emergence of B2B as, as, a, as a bigger share of the overall kind of venture back startup and, and just gen- generally where money is flowing. And I, I think I, I think we're going to continue to see that trend, right, as the next wave for, for Southeast Asia. I think because of what we talked about, like you're right in terms of what you're going after. Like I think it's still easier to go after large enterprise companies, to your point. Like they just, the, the value proposition resonates so much more loudly and, and, and easily for a large complex company than it does like a small startup. But Again, the SaaS gross margin profile just allows you to be innovative and play in multiple different segments at different price points and gives just you a lot of commercial creativity in how you go about constructing your business. And so I don't want to underestimate the innovators ever that they won't find a way to build SaaS for micro SMEs, which we all know is a huge opportunity in ASEAN and Asia specifically. Yes, it's all about the cost, right? But can you get that cost down to a point where it functions very much like a high volume, low price point product? I think so. It's possible for sure. Kind of like what we saw with telcos, right? Where they just right. decided that internet and 5G, all this was going to be free in India, especially like with geo and stuff. 
So I, I, like, if you do the math of it, it could work. It's just about, yeah, finding that right product and problem and user persona. I've seen some interesting things. I'm sure you guys have seen some interesting things, right? Like, for example, FinTech had a huge moment, right, in, in Southeast Asia. Right. And now I can see that evolving into SaaS, like FinTech yeah. SaaS, right? And you're still catering to a lot of those people who have started using your payment gateways and payment rails. And now you're building like very simple SaaS functionality to help them track their budget and expenses and other components of their business. And just like elevating the maturity of business at the most kind of the most federated level of the economy, thinking like farmers and, 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 you know, really like down into the, to the, to the bottom of the, of the overall like supply pyramid for any product that we might actually end up consuming. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that, that it's possible. Mm. I think that's totally fair that, that I think there's a mismatch, I think for, like you said, I think it's possible to build B2B SaaS, but you just have to design it for a price point that's yeah. lower than what you read online on Substack, right? Or yeah. SaaS, yeah. right? And yeah, then if you totally. do that that way, then you got to build, like it's very product-led or you got to be very cost-efficient. I think you got to be dang sure about your unit economics. I think there's so many SaaS yeah. companies I met and I'm basically redoing their lifetime value and the customer yeah. acquisition cost because I think they tend to, well, underestimate the lifetime, I think, of the companies that they have. Yeah. And they tend to overestimate the margins because they don't load in customer support and sales time yeah. and all these other things. So yeah. I don't know. It's just a I think I think that's the big problem, I think. I think there's a window, but requires I think support. there's a there's also an opportunity. So if you think about like an Asia company, right? Any SaaS company, generally again, broad strokes, right? Fifty to seventy percent of their costs will be people costs, right? Like, beauty of the business model. Everything else right. is like pretty controllable, right? And so if you're building in Asia, yes, you're serving perhaps consumers, businesses at a lower price point, but you're also paying at a lower price point. So again, like you're kind of affecting both the top and the bottom together, right? Like I think running a, a company out of like the West, trying to serve the East, like that's probably a failing proposition. But right. I think if you're running in the East, serving the East, then you've brought both down. And then I do think that we're still yet to see the full like, commoditization of cloud computing like those big boys are still making a lot of money (laughs) and that's not going to last forever like that's just every economy works that way that eventually more people come in they lower the price for everyone that part becomes commoditized other things become value added and so that should help right that should help every software company because a lot of times people right now startups that i talk to one of the biggest issues is like, yeah, they wanted to be quick and they moved with AWS, GCP, Azure. I'm not being specific. I'm just saying any of them. And then all of a sudden they're bill sticker shock, right? Especially if they're storing a lot, computing a lot. And so I think that plus the people costs being at the right point will enable something that's much more high volume as a business. Uh, on that note, could you share a time that you personally have been brave? Sure. So my bravery pales in comparison to anyone who's exhibited real bravery in terms of frontline medical staff or or soldiers or a long list of other people. But I think for me, my personal probably bravest moment was just leaving behind kind of everything that I had ever known or built in the US and just kind of relocating to Asia by myself. I ended up very long relationship on the, on the personal side to do it. 
I left a pretty high performing team, really healthy kind of overall compensation situation, everything kind of for the challenge of doing something different, experiencing something different, learning more, growing more as a personal on my personal life. Um, yeah, just relocating to a country that I had never even visited before, which was Singapore. Luckily, it's amazing and it's very, very easy. So like in retrospect, I think in retrospect, it was less brave than it was in the moment. Like in the right. moment, of in course. the absence of information, it was a brave decision. Now that I've done it, I could say it wasn't that brave. It was actually quite easy. But I remember thinking quite long and hard about that decision and wondering whether it was the right thing to do. But I did it and super happy for it. It's one of the best decisions I ever made. What was the hardest part about that decision? Was it like letting go of family no. or friends or was it going to be the team? What was the hardest part of that decision from your reflection? I think, to be honest with you, like obviously personally it was, it was it, the, my community of loved ones, friends and family, right? right? So I'm born and raised in the US. I've always lived there. My brother is, is there. My family, my parents were there. My friends, all my friends were there at Berkeley, right? Like that mm -hmm. whole community, just everything, everything I knew was there. So that was on the personal side. I think I was able to mitigate that knowing that it may not be permanent. Like at least in my head, it was like, okay, you can always come back, right? So that kind of mitigating risk in your own head. I think the one that was less reversible in my mind was professional because right. you're in San Francisco, you're in the headquarters of a company that has just done its series E, I think at the time, D or mm. E. We're on, we're on the path. I'm pretty relevant internally, like executives know me, I'm, I'm working on the biggest accounts, I'm like really in the thick of things and things are going really well. And so I think that was the thing of like, okay, I'm, will I become out of sight, out of mind? Like I'm going to Asia Pacific, it's less than 5% of our business, who cares? I'm going to come here do a great job. Like, will it, will it be a bad move professionally when it's all said and done? That was, I think, the harder part because I felt like it was le less reversible. If I came here, did two years, it's not like you can just waltz back. Your friends and family, they'll take you back. Like if they're good friends and family, but <laughs> the, the company may have moved on. Yeah, right? yeah, Your yeah. job may not be available. Yeah. There's so many risk factors, yeah. right? They always yeah. say it's all about timing. So that was, yeah. I think for me, that was probably the thing I thought about more. Great. On that note, thank you so much for sharing. I'd like to kind of summarize the three big takeaways to go from this. First, of course, thank you so much for sharing about B2B SaaS. I think there's so many, I think, I think, perspectives, I think, on obviously what makes good SaaS, but also what your personal learnings were, what were the surprises, and what are the kind of like errors that people have when you think about it, or even when they start building it. Uh, so it was really interesting to hear about how you go about coaching founders and working with the teams to make things happen. And I think that's very valuable to kind of go through that process. The second is about AI. I think you did a great job kind of, I don't know what's the word, spitballing and brainstorming with me about how it is. Like you said, we're both probably horribly wrong. We gave it a shot and we know, took a stand. We took, we took a stand. We did. <laughs> we weren't like wishy-washy. We're like, oh, yeah. it works for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I thought it was just a fun kind of like speculation, but also I think some hypotheses around what we thought could happen in terms of it benefiting those with proprietary data sets and how it could be a good opportunity and tailwind for startups to kind of like have a growth story play out using AI. But lastly, this was brief, of course. Uh, lastly, I appreciated you sharing a little bit about your moments of bravery in terms of your move to Southeast Asia and Singapore. I thought that was a nice moment to talk about how like some parts are reversible. In other words, your family can accept you back again, but I think <laughs> professionally, it was a big jump for you. So thank you so much, Bavik, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. 
Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Thank you.